be here now can be seen either as a pointer to a kind of practice or it can be seen as a description of the ever-present reality. You know, in other words, like when we say it as a practice to be, when we tell people to be here now, it refers to sort of shifting the attention away from the thought stories and bringing the attention to the bare happening of this moment, the sounds, the sensations, the visual images of this moment, and just being aware of presence itself and present experiencing. And that's called being here now. And of course, in that sense of the word, no one is ever being here now in that sense all the time. <laughs> Because we all are sometimes caught up in stories and thoughts. Um, but the other way of seeing being here now is that it's just a description of the fact that here now is all there ever is. And it's what we are. And we can't really ever leave the now. We can't leave here, and by here I don't mean our geographical location, which appears here. I mean this presentness, this immediacy, this here-nowness um, is timeless and always right here. Welcome to The Sounds of Sand. My name is Michael Riley. Today I'm in conversation with spiritual teacher, author, and explorer of what is Joan Tollefson. And we discuss her diverse background of practice and her bare-bones approach to non-duality, meditation, Zen, and being here now. And Joan's books include Painting the Sidewalk with Water, Talks and Dialogues about Non-Duality, Nothing to Grasp, and her most recent book is Death, The End of Self-Improvement. So it's my pleasure to present Joan Tollefson today on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Okay, I'm here with Joan Tollefson for the uh, Sounds of Sand. Thank you, Joan, so much for being on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with Sand. And something that you haven't really talked about at Sand, I know you've, you've maybe talked about this in other contexts, but just for our listeners, I was wondering if we could start by just you giving some of your story and some of the paths and traditions that you were have been connected to. To in your life? You know, I think I had a spiritual bent from early on from childhood. And uh, as I was reading books about religion and stuff as a, as a young person, uh, even though I wasn't raised in a religion. And then in college in the 60s, I encountered, um, I read Alan Watts and I took a class on Vedanta and Zen, read the Upanishads, and there was a little Zen sitting group led by Richard Clark, who um, later became a Zen Roshi. Um, and I, I went there occasionally to the little sitting group, uh, so I learned to you know, meditate, but I wouldn't say I did it very often. <laughs> um, and then I went in after college to a kind of long period of um, alcohol and drug abuse that was quite serious and nearly died. And after that, I 
got into politics after I so I sobered up in at the end of 1973 and I got into politics, uh, the women's movement, the lesbian gay movement, the uh, the uh, disability rights movement, uh, the anti-imperialist left, the Central America Solidarity Movement, a whole variety of things. And eventually I left politics and got into Zen. I started sitting at the San Francisco Zen Center. I lived briefly at the Berkeley Zen Center. And my first teacher there was Mel Weitzman, Sojin Mel Weitzman, who died not long ago. And at that time, uh, both Charlotte Joko Beck and Tony Packer were coming to California, where I was living, um, and giving retreats there once a year. And Lenore Friedman, who became a friend of mine, had, had written about them in her book, Meetings with Remarkable Women. And so I ended up sitting with both of them in the Bay Area when they were there, first with Joko. And, and I had a, I sat a number of retreats with Joko in the subsequent years and remained connected with her until her death. Um, but when I sat my first retreat with Tony Packer, that really just grabbed me. That was for me. <laughs> and, um, and I immediately went to Springwater, the, uh, retreat center that she and her students or friends, as she preferred to call everybody, uh, in Northwestern New York, I went there and did my first retreat there. And I think by the end of, oh, and then I, I also sat with Maureen Stewart, who was another Zen teacher when I was back in California. And eventually within the next year, I think it was, I moved to Springwater to be first a volunteer and then on staff. And I was on staff at Springwater living there for a total of five years and remained close to Tony Packer until her death. Um, even after I left the center. And so I really view her as my main teacher. And while, and she was, she had been a Zen teacher with Philip Kaplow at the Rochester Zen Center. And then, and she would have been his successor, but she, um, she left because she really didn't feel comfortable with the hierarchy and with being seen as a teacher and with the dogma, some of the dogma and the beliefs and the, whole ritual and all of that thing. So she wanted to do Zen, but in a very simple, open way, um, not even calling it Zen anymore. And so that's what was going on at Springwater. And then while I was at Springwater, uh, somebody who passed through gave me a copy of Nisargadatta's I Am That. And that book really grabbed me and I passed it on to Tony and it really grabbed her. And she started reading from it at the end of retreats out loud. And, um, and then somebody else who passed through Springwater, um, told me about Jean Klein and made me promise that when I got back to the Bay area on my next vacation there, I would go see Jean cause he was going to be there. And when I was back there and the night rolled around when Jean was giving his talk, I really didn't want to go, but I had promised this guy, I will go to this talk. So I dragged myself to Jean Klein and I was just smitten with Jean Klein. It affected me very powerfully, and I ended up going on well, several weekend events and then a retreat with him. And he was kind of near the end of his life at that point. Um, uh, let's see. And then from there, I, I encountered Gangaji, who was just starting out on her teaching career, and we ended up 
I ended up working very closely with her after I left Springwater. And, and then I went to things with a number of other satsang teachers, Francis Lucille and Isaac Shapiro and Adi Ashanti. And I don't even remember all of the things I ended up going to. <laughs> and then I encountered the radical non-dual people like Tony Parsons at one point, And I went on a retreat with Tony Parsons and, um, and meanwhile, I had started holding meetings myself after I left Springwater, and that was in 1996, I guess, when my first book came out. And um, and so uh, I've been doing that ever since. So anyway, I've been holding meetings since 1996, and I've written five books all about this subject. And um, and I, I think my what I offer somehow uh, seems to incorporate all these different threads and strands that I've been involved in. Oh, I sat with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Anam Tubton, at one point, um, and, and other Zen teachers like Steve Hagen, John Terrance. So, um, so I really have quite a diverse uh, background, which has sometimes been confusing because for a long time I was trying to figure out which one was the best, which one was right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I finally realized that that was a fool's errand. And I just recognized that in some way I had elements of all of them in, you know, I had, I had digested elements of all of them and, uh, and they all seem to be part of how I see things in that way. So, um, so that's a, kind of my story yeah beautiful it's it sounds like the sort of quintessential american spiritual path it's like incorporating and integrating so many different like you said strands weaving them together yeah it's so interesting because you know back in the old days somebody would you know hike for a treacherous hike for for weeks or months across mountain ranges and so on to go see one teacher uh Mm -hmm or something, or Nasargadatta, who I think met with his guru three times or something like that. Um, and now we live in this world where uh, we have sand conferences. Well, we did have sand conferences, but sand things going on and and YouTubes and uh, teachers offering things on Zoom. And so we literally are connected to people all over the world. And it's just, it's really all happened in the course of my lifetime, really. Um because when I was starting out in Zen, there there really wasn't that much around, you know. It, when I was growing up, I I when I felt interested in Buddhism as a child, I thought, well, but I'll never meet any actual Buddhists, um, <laughs> and um, you know, so it's all sort of erupted over the course of my now seventy four years, and uh, um, and yeah, it's quite an amazing scene, which is sometimes a little overwhelming and confusing for people, I think, because yeah you get all these different things rather than just sinking deeply into one thing. But, but, um, but it also has a wonder, the wonderful advantage of just giving you different perspectives and, and, uh, so like everything, it has strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of, I, I can imagine that the overwhelm of like, where do I start? You know, there's <laughs> 500 Alan Watts talks on YouTube, which is the right one to start with, right. you know? Yeah. And in this, uh, this podcast series, it's, um, it wasn't the intention, but there's sort seems to be an emergence of an exploration of what is meant by non-duality. 
And uh, in the intro, like sound uh, collage we have, it starts with Maurizio uh, Pinazzo, co-founder of San, asking, what is non-duality? And um, I, I didn't think about it so much when I put it in there, but it's starting to become a theme, you know, in, in this expansion of what is meant by non-duality. And so I'm just curious, what, how does that resonate for you these days, the idea of not to, you know, like the, the, the expansion of what non-duality is? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, people mean such different things by non-duality. Right. Um, so <laughs> when someone tells me if I'm having a meeting with someone and they tell me they're into non-duality, I ask them exactly what they mean because, um, you know, they could mean any number of different things. Right. Um, to me, it just basically points to the to the reality that there's no real separation, that everything, there's immense diversity and variation, but there's no real separation. It's all one seamless, whole, undivided and indivisible happening. And um, so it points to that and, um, and to the fact that the polarities, that this manifestation can really only show up in polarities. Um, and, and they go together, like, and they're relative to each other and they go together. So you can't have up without down and, and the, the, the ceiling is up from the perspective of the floor, but it's down from the perspective of outer space. Um, and so it's all relative and it's all inseparable. You can't pull the polarities apart. And I think in Western culture, and the Eastern cultures have always understood that. But I think in Western culture, we've sort of had a tendency to imagine that good will finally defeat evil or uh, the light will conquer the dark or something like that, mm, yeah. either either in globally or in our own lives. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, so in a way, you could say that non-duality includes duality um, mm -hmm. because otherwise it would be kind of dualistic. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, so that's, I think that's how, that's how I see it. And I might, I might add that, you know, I think to me it's just sort of that we have all these different words that point to different aspects of reality like awareness and consciousness and experiencing and all that. And, and those, that, that can lead and certain teachings can sort of lead to the impression that there's this thing called awareness that's separate from the content of awareness or something. Or, right. And, and non-duality as I see it is also seeing through that so that there really is no separation. Um, yeah. And I think you alluded you alluded to this sort of earlier when you were when you mentioned studying with a number of teachers and wondering if you were doing it right. And um, you know, there's so much in our culture about self-improvement and self-judgment. And I feel that sometimes people can be approaching spirituality and have this question of love, like, am I doing it right? You know, um, like if, if I read Ram Dass, be here now, like, am I, you know, am I actually in the now? Like, you know, every moment to moment, you kind of suck, second guess yourself and have this, this cultural conditioning of striving and perfectionism. And, um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could speak more to that and, and how that, may, you know, I, I feel like this is something that you address in in your in your teaching and your work 
of, of the, the beauty and the simplicity of just this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, um, first of all, I've, you know, I am definitely imperfect and I've noticed that all my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and I feel like our humanness and our human imperfection and our human foibles and all that is somehow again, from the non-dual perspective, not something separate. It's not like we're trying to transcend that and eliminate that or something. And, um, and yeah, our culture really does emphasize uh, self-improvement and perfection. And some of us, like I have a, definitely a perfectionistic streak. <laughs> and so some people are more, more programmed that way than others to get caught up in that. But um, I called my last book, Death, the End of Self-Improvement, and uh, <laughs> um, because it's, the, the, it's also paradoxical because like with Be Here Now, for example, you mentioned that. I mean, the Be Here Now can be seen either as a pointer to a kind of practice or it can be seen as a description of the ever-present reality. You know, in other words, like when we say it as a practice to be when we tell people to be here now it refers to sort of shifting the attention away from the thought stories and bringing the attention to the bare happening of this moment the sounds the sensations the visual images of this moment and just being aware of presence itself and present experiencing and that's called being here now and of course in that sense of the word no one is ever being here now in that sense all the time <laughs> mm-hmm. because we all are sometimes caught up in stories and thoughts. Um, but the other way of seeing being here now is that it's just a description of the fact that here now is all there ever is and it's what we are and we can't really ever leave the now. We can't leave here. And by here, I don't mean our geographical location, which appears here. I mean this presentness, this immediacy, this here nowness um, is timeless and always right here. And there's no way out of it. And so even if we're lost in thought or caught up in an argument with somebody or whatever, all of that is what here now is doing. It's what it's what's it's what's showing up in here now being. So you can see that term in in both of those different ways and they're both valid i mean Mm -hmm. it is a valid practice um, that has something to offer and then there's also a really important realization that oh you can't actually escape the now which is a wonderful realization because when you have being here now as a practice like you said we can get caught up in feeling like am i doing it right and and you know Mm -hmm. some people actually like are thinking about what percentage of the time am I being here now and what percentage of the time am I not being here now and am I being here now as much as somebody else and you know right. and just feeling this kind of effort to be here now and this constant judging of how well I'm doing at it and that's all really um, painful and not really the point so when we sort of do have this realization that everything is here now um, it's very relieving and freeing Hmm. and there may still be an interest in being here now in the other sense, but what can fall away is that sort of sense of 
that it's this big thing that I have to do and that I'm either doing it right or wrong and I'm doing it mm -hmm. 60% of the time or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the little twist you put on be here now of being here now that somehow that that fluidity of the action of being here now like it takes it away from being more of like a command like hey be here now like this uh, this task to like you said a description of beingness is just here now that's the nature of beingness of being and that's that's you know i i, I think you use the word presence a lot um i often think of it as existence like just just the fabric of of this moment is the same fabric in which you know, the Beatles recorded their albums and Napoleon and the comet killed the dinosaurs. All of that happened in the same continuum of beingness all the way back to the Big Bang or however, you know, to, yeah. the, to the timeless void. It's all in the same being here now. Yeah, what had happened, it was happening now. Mm -hmm. And when the future happens, it will happen now. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And... One of the things that beingness is doing sometimes is practicing being here now. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's one of the ways that here now being shows up sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another topic that I've, I've heard you talk about at, at some of the sand um, talks and other, other places is the story and the the um, the problem that can arise from the separate self. This, um, this another cultural thing that we have is this story of the, the separate self and individualism and you know the, the freedom as defined as your ability to kind of break away from from everyone else and and you know make your life just the way it you know curate the perfect life for yourself. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the separate self and how that is a, uh, a part of your work. Yeah, well, um, actually, it was Tony Packer who really um, made who really was helpful to me in that way because um, you know she just would have would say, "What is what what is this self? What is it that feels defensive? What is it that feels hurt? What is it that feels angry?" Um, and, and she would suggest things like just watching as choices and decisions happen to see if we could actually find the chooser, if there was a chooser. And so, and, and she didn't put it as a, you know, she, she liked to put things in questions, which I always appreciated instead of like making an assertion, there is no self, you know, she would invite us to go looking for it. Mm -hmm. And it just became very clear to me on that first retreat I did with her that, oh, there really is no little me in here. I mean, it's like a mirage. It's like, it's, it's just a mental image and it's made up of thoughts and stories and memories and, and bodily sensations and all kinds of things that sort of swim together into this mirage like me. And then it's like the subject of, and because of the way our language works, interestingly, like Chinese doesn't work this way. I mean, they don't have a subject to the sentences, but, mm -hmm. um, but because we always have this language that has to have pronouns, um, there's always, it seems in language, like there's always a doer. There's so, as soon as we have language, it's like, we're thinking in terms of 
well, there's me. I'm thinking my thoughts. I'm authoring my thoughts. I'm making my decisions. I'm experiencing my life. I'm, you know, I'm in here and I'm me. And, but when we really start to look for this me, there's really nothing there except a bunch of thoughts and sensations and, and, um, and even, you know, we identify this me as being somehow in the body or something. But when we really start to explore the body uh, with awareness, um, instead of thinking about it, but just actually feeling the body, um, we discover that the body isn't this solid, substantial, separate thing the way we think it is, or the way it looks in the mirror or something. It's you know, if we feel into it, we can't even find a boundary between inside and outside. We can't find, there are parts of the body where we don't feel anything. And there are, it's all just tinglings and vibrations. And, and, uh, and, you know, scientifically, we know it's constantly changing. Cells are mutating and dying and this and that. And uh, yeah. apparently it's not the same body that we had X number of years ago in any way. It's mm-hmm. the pattern. There's some pattern, but it's, it's always changing and it's inseparable from the environment. You know, like when America, especially we have this idea of independence, <laughs> but, um, but we're not independent. We're utterly dependent, interdependent. We wouldn't be here without air, food, water, and actually without the whole, I mean, we wouldn't be on this call right now without the people who invented the computer and all the materials that go into making them and, and um, all of that. And, and so it's actually like the whole universe is here in every moment, in everything. Mm-hmm. And apparent things aren't really, you know, we have nouns again. So we think, oh, there really are these things, chairs and tables and me. But when we, you know, it, it, the things really don't, they're not, they actually are always changing. They're always, they're not staying the same. Some things mm-hmm. change very slowly. As you were speaking, uh, talking about this, um, you know, the inner and the outer, I was thinking the feelings I'm feeling in my body right now are a direct result of the words that you're saying. You know, part of me is a little nervous, like, am I asking the right questions? Am I doing it right? But then part of me is really enjoying and feeling happy with what you're saying. And we're we're constantly carrying around sort of the echoes of, of the relationships and the interactions we have with other people. And that's a part of the body too. You, you know, it's like these, uh, these resonances that, that help shape who we are and what we feel as the body. And it's so much of it, most of it's not me, you know, in the traditional sense. Yeah. And it's true. It's like right now we're not really, I mean, in some sense it appears like we're two separate people, but we're completely interwoven in the fact that we're, we're having some kind of connection that's that's um, that's happening on many different levels, not just verbally, but as you say, it's in the body. It's it's. Um, I mean, I don't know all the you know energy, whatever. But we're having mm-hmm. we're interpenetrating. You know, we're not really separate. Yeah. We're 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 and we're one whole happening as we're having a conversation somehow. Right. And. Uh, and that's always the case, you know, we're always in relationship to something, you know, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's the extra meta layer that it's like, we're, you and I are having a conversation, but with the intention that people in the future are going to listen to this. Right, <laughs> right. So it's, 
And, yeah. and it's like, at that point, we have no control over the interaction anymore. Like it's just, it's out there and people can take it and leave it and integrate it in any way that wherever they are in that moment. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Like we think, we think, for example, that a book is just a solid thing and it's, you know, it, anybody who reads this book will be reading the same book, but it's totally not true. Um, it's like if you go to a movie with a friend sometimes and it, and they like it and you don't or something like that. And it seems afterwards when you talk about it, like you've seen two completely different movies and you have, you know, it's right. like, and even if you go back and read a book that you read five years ago, it can seem like a completely different book. Like you see all sorts of things in it and hear things in it that you didn't see before. Yeah. And um, so even something that seems much more solid than the spoken word, something like a printed book isn't really as solid as it seems to be because once you start reading it, you know, that amazing process of translating these little black squiggles into, into meaning. Right. <laughs> and it's very fluid. Yeah. 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 And that's what that, you know, I think about that with music too, with like every, t every time I listen to Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, I'm hearing something new and it's a new experience for me. Even though, as you said, it's you know, you know, if I'm listening to it digitally, it's it's literally encoded ones and zeros that seem like they could never change. But the experience is always, it's it's yeah, it's yeah, it's beautiful. And music is an interest. I put this in my last book, but you know, music is an interesting thing in terms of now, because if all you had was just the present moment and you were listening to music, all you'd have is, uh, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, you wouldn't have music. In order for it to be music, you have to have the memory of what came before and some kind of anticipation of where it's going. Mm -hmm. And that makes it music. And yet all of that, the memory and the anticipation is all happening now. It's mm -hmm. all incorporated in this moment. So it's like the past it's not really out there. I mean, it's gone. It's completely gone. And yet somehow it's, it's here also. Yeah. And so there's so many paradoxes with all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that, that's also an invitation for the softening around like the anxiety of being here now all the time, you know, being here now can include reminiscing about your morning or being here now can be you know, thinking about your vacation next week, you know, and it's, it's, it's all happening now. It's, you know, sometimes I think when people, um, think about the power of now, it can feel like you have to stay on this razor's edge where there's no thought, there's no anything but pure presence. And yeah, then I don't know if that, that feels, um, a little too rigid or something. Yeah. And good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so on the um, on the sand uh, blog, we feature your writings from time to time. Uh, you know, your beautiful newsletters and uh, blog posts. And um, earlier, you were you were kind of talking about how the way English language and many languages are constructed with a subject maybe plays into our um, illusion of of uh, of a doer. And um, I just wanted to read a quote from one of your recent 
writing is a short quote. It says, instead of rushing in to provide a label or a conceptual description, we can simply be awake to the bare actuality of this present moment, the wordless reality. And I wonder if there's something in that word, wordless, that um, something about our over... Um, almost fascination with language and words and, you know, this current zeitgeist of artificial intelligence of chat GPT of like feeling like reality and intelligence is really somehow embedded in, 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 in words. Um, so I'm just curious you know, if wordlessness feels like part of the path for you. Definitely. I mean, yeah. we're very embedded in language, you know, I think, um, it's like the fish swimming in the ocean. We're swimming in language in a way. I mean, we're, mm. we're, um, we don't have it when we're first born. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we learn and, and, and it's interesting, you know, it's like the baby doesn't see chairs and tables. Mm. The baby has to learn that, oh, this shape is a chair and a chair means something with four legs and a back and, you know, and, oh, this shape is a table and a table is this, you know. And so we learn to see chairs and tables and dogs and cats. You know, you don't start out with that. Um, and I've, I've been reading an interesting recently book by uh, someone I really love, David Hinton. He's a translator of Chinese and early Chans and 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 Chinese poetry. And it, but, but he's talking about how... Um, in early Chinese language, you know, pict- first of all, it's pictographic. So the, the word actually has a, a relationship to the thing itself, which gets mm. lost once you have an alphabet where it becomes totally abstract. And then there's no subject in the, in the Chinese. So there's no I in there. And, and so these, these sort of developments, and then when you, have, when you, when you get the written word, you know, when you have just spoken language, as people did early on, it's it's a, it's like smoke. It's like it's you know it's very fluid and it just dissolves. Um, but when it gets written down, it becomes much more set in stone in some way. And so, so yeah, words words mm-hmm. create the illusion that there are all these solid, separate things. It's like the actuality of life is seamless and undivided. But the words are like a map, you know, that's like the United States is actually a seamless geographical whole. It's not really divided into different states, but the map puts these lines around different parts and says that, well, this is New York and this is New Jersey and this is Texas and this is Illinois. And, Mm -hmm. um, and those are artificial, abstract ideas, really. They're not there in, in the actuality. Um, and if you think about something like Chicago, I mean, there's undeniably something that we're calling Chicago, but what is it? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it the buildings? Is it the land? Is it the people? I mean, it's all changing all the time. Everybody's version of Chicago is different. You can't, there's no real boundary between Chicago and the lake or Chicago and Evanston next door. Um, <laughs> what is Chicago? And um, and yet, because we have the word Chicago, it seems like there's this really solid thing, Chicago. 
And it's like that with everything, with me and you and everything. It's So the words kind of freeze and divide what is actually fluid and indivisible. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I love words. I mean, I'm a writer. I love words. Right. And, and they're, they're certainly a wonderful, I mean, you know, they've gotten us to the top of the food chain and, and they're, <laughs> they're, they have an immense power and they can be very beautiful too, you know, in, uh, and, and useful and, and creative in so many ways. So this is not anti. And in a way, once we know language, we can't really forget it. I mean, in other words, right. we can't. Like we look at something like a like a glass of water, and we can't like unsee the fact that we see a glass of water. But as I discovered in my years as a visual artist, initially, um, we can look at a simple thing like a glass of water in a in a way where it it isn't a glass of water anymore. You know, where mm-hmm. we start just noticing the reflections in it and the light and the. Mm-hmm all the subtle colorations and everything. And, and it isn't really, we're not really looking at it as a glass of water anymore. We're looking at it in a completely other way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think art often, visual art often um, brings forth that kind of seeing, it kind of invites us to see in that way, to see something in a different way than we've been seeing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe even poetry too. Like it's it's sort of lib- liberating words from the the tyranny of of being just descriptions of reality, but to to use words in a more freeing, liberating way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and using them playfully, and mm-hmm. all it all you know, playing with language itself, and. Um, yeah, so I think there's something really powerful about, and because we're so immersed in language, and then particularly nowadays, we are so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're so um, drowning, really, in information. You know, we have mm-hmm. so much words coming at us all the time, yeah. and information and language, and which people years and years centuries ago didn't have i mean i think indigenous people and so on they just they would spend time just sitting there in silence with each mm-hmm. other um yeah. it, it was a different kind of culture that we than what we have now where where there's hardly ever a moment of silence i mean you go into a store and they're playing music and and um you know you go to the airport and there's tv screens everywhere and um it, 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 the airport wasn't like that when I was a kid, you know, it, 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 it's all happened again in the course of my lifetime. But it's so it's like, we're so drenched in all that, that it's really, really, I think, an, an incredibly powerful thing just to spend time in silence. And yeah. just to, uh, like to listen to sounds, just as sound, as pure sound, yeah, you might still know what it is, you might still know, oh, it's an airplane flying over. But again, you can let that label go and then just really hear the and mm-hmm. you know, and the caw 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 of the crow and the and the even the sounds that you might think are unpleasant, like a chainsaw or whatever. If you start listening to them just as pure sound, as like music, yeah, um, they become really interesting. And the same with visual things. If you start looking at 
ordinary things like a glass of water or a crumpled Kleenex or a tree or or your desk or anything, if you just start looking at it as as something you've never seen before, as you mm. might the way you might look at a painting or something. Yeah. Um, and suddenly it opens up in all sorts of ways. Like you start realizing that there's a real infinity there of mm-hmm. of of um, visual a visual feast, as it were, in these simple, ordinary things that we normally just overlook or don't even pay attention to. And um, and of course, the same is true of eating a meal or drinking mm-hmm. a cup of tea or anything. I mean, we're so used to just multitasking and doing 10 million things at once. But if we maybe just drink our morning coffee or our morning tea without doing anything else, just sitting in the chair drinking that cup of tea or coffee and really, you know, tasting it and smelling it and looking at the visual, visual of it in the cup and the cup itself and being, feeling the body and just being the whole experience of drinking a cup of tea instead of doing it while we're also on the internet and on the phone and (laughs) yeah. Well, th- um, this is the be- the benefit of retreats, right? Like when you go on retreat, you start to, once th- you start to slow down en- enough, you start to really see these things that you're talking about. Like because there isn't the sensory, you know, if you're doing a silent retreat, for example, you're not supposed to be on your phone or reading books. So, you know, if it's really quiet and and suddenly a plane flies overhead, you're like, oh wow, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you you. I remember one time I was brushing my teeth and I, I looked at the toothpaste and I started reading all the ingredients because I hadn't read anything in a few days. And I'm just like really fascinated with all the ingredients <laughs> in a tooth in in toothpaste. You know? It's funny on a retreat, you know, often there's a yeah. bulletin board where people put important notices and things. And mm-hmm. people spend a lot of time in front of the bulletin board. It's like we're so yeah. hungry for that kind exactly. of information. But but um but yeah, and on a retreat, I mean that's one of the beautiful things about going on a silent retreat is that you just start to you start to tune in on these subtler and subtler layers of experience and and you go out for a walk and all of a sudden it's just like you're walking through this wonderland. Um, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes when people go on a retreat, they think that they're thinking more than ever before. Um, but actually I would say what's really happening is that they're just aware of it for, for the first time. Like they've been doing that, all along, they just weren't really aware of it even. Yeah. And so that's another wonderful thing about retreats is that you start to, um, like, as I often tell the story of my first sitting all day, sitting at the San Francisco Zen Center, when I noticed that all my thoughts were about the future. And I'm sure I'd been doing that forever, but I had never seen it before. And mm-hmm. once that, ha- once that, once I started to see it, it was like a light had turned on and I, I could see it every time it happened. And it gradually began to lose its grip on me, that kind of obsessive mm-hmm. thinking about the future. And so it, that's another wonderful part of silent retreats is that we notice we notice these patterns of thought that we weren't even aware of before. And we notice these really subtle things like when, when I, you know, I can really feel now if I say something to somebody that's a little bit, you know, a little bit poking at them. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I can feel it in my body. I can, you know, I, I can just feel my whole body change. Um, it's like, I know that I'm, oh, I'm poking a little bit there, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I didn't 
I sure I was never aware of that, you know, decades ago. Um, So you become more and more sensitive to these kinds of things and you start to see them and feel them. And um, it's quite wonderful. Yeah, that 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 heightened sense of of just noticing, 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 and uh, also I feel that with practice, time can seem like it goes a little slower, and you can when you want to uh, uh, cherish a moment or you know really savor a moment, you can. Um, but also in the moments when maybe you'd be reactive before when you would get kind of caught in the in the reflex of of getting angry or something like that you can kind of see it arising much slower than normal and say okay well here here comes that wave of anger okay. yeah it yeah. <laughs> was interesting like at springwater when we did 10 retreats and 10 silent retreats every year you know and mm-hmm. and on staff i mean often in between retreats people would be having all these interpersonal Uh, you know, issues and things and, you know, mad at each other and not, you know, having fights and everything and all this stuff would be going on like in any human situation, you know, and then we'd go on retreat for a week. And at the end of retreat, it was like we were all washed clean. It was amazing. Mm. You know, like all of a sudden everybody was just glowing and, and filled with love for each other. And, and, you know, it's like all of that had fallen away. I mean, it came back, you know, but, but it was like it, it, it had fallen away and, um, yeah. So it's, it's It's like silence is a, is a medicine, you know, it's that, that saying about trying to solve a problem with the same system that created it or however it goes, like it's a lot of our interpersonal problems are caused by the mind and overthinking and we think, you know, conflict resolutions and talking and all these things are important, obviously, but maybe it's not always the solution. And the solution is just be with each other in, in stillness and silence and let it dissolve, you know, let it let it work itself out energetically instead of yeah. Yeah, and so powerful just to be listened to. Like yeah. you know, oftentimes if somebody's telling us about you know, that they, that they have some big problem or they've just been diagnosed or whatever it is. And we, we tend to feel like we have to say something, we have to say something comforting, or we have to say the right thing, or will we be, or maybe are we saying the right thing, (laughs) you know, but really the most healing thing is just list, just being there, just listening to them, just being there. And it's amazing how, how healing that is. Um, and oftentimes the, the other, you know, like people trying to say something comforting or helpful, um, can be really actually kind of off-putting and annoying. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 And I guess also it's, uh, it, as you were saying earlier with the written word, so much of our lives are now texting each other. And it's like when you hear someone's family member died, you know, you feel like you have to say something, you have to send them something, but maybe just next time I'll send a, a parentheses and then a bunch of spaces, you know, and then a close parentheses and say, this is the sp- space of silence I'm offering for you when there's nothing to say. Yeah. And it's, you know, yeah. it's hard to even convey that in a text, you know, because, sure. yeah. because it's, you know, the silence, the aliveness of it is really the silence itself, not getting a text that says I'm being silent for you, you know. Right. But um, I mean, not that that's not a good thing to do or something. Nice. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'll ask too about um, things that that you have coming up. You mentioned that 
you're so you're moving your blog or or starting a Substack with with the writings that you offer. Yes, I just pulled this off. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been wanting for a while to switch from Facebook to Substack as my main writing yeah. platform, and mm-hmm. um, and then Mailchimp suddenly wanted to charge me a lot of money for my mailing list, so mm. I um, that sort of nudged me. And, um, I, I, cause I'm very technophobic and I, I went ahead and did all the things you have to do. And I moved my mailing list over to Substack and I, hmm. I'm going to be doing my writing on Substack and then I'll put notices on Facebook too, but I'm going to do the writing on Substack. And I, cause I think it's a much better medium for what I do, um, than Facebook really. Um, Facebook is really designed for these short little pithy sayings, you know, and, I tend to write longer in-depth things. So, um, so yeah, I just, just got up and running yesterday, I guess it was. So oh, I, wow. cool. or no, a few days. Anyway, I just sent out my first article today. So oh, congratulations. Uh, it, it, it is up and running and people can subscribe if they want. <laughs> nice. And you have a link to that on your website or is it just like joantollison.substack? Yeah, but it's on my, it's on the contact page of my website. There's a link and it's on my Facebook page now too. And, um, and you probably find it just by Googling Joan Tollison Substack or something like that. Mm -hmm. Nice. That that sounds great. I'll, I'll subscribe to that myself. Mm. Um, (laughs) Uh, cool. And anything else? Um, so do you, you offer, um, things online or things in person, uh, at, at all coming? Up? I haven't been doing anything in per. I used to do gatherings in person and I stopped that some years back, mm-hmm. um, just before the pandemic, actually the place I was renting disappeared. So, and then the pandemic hit. And so mm-hmm. since then I haven't done anything in person. Um, but I do zooms, I offer individual meetings on zoom and there's information about that on the, on my website. And, um, and I may start offering, um, group zooms at some point, but I haven't, I haven't done that so far. Mm -hmm. Um, nice, cool. Uh, anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on today? No, I can't think of anything uh, except just to express my uh, love and support for sand, which I think has done so much amazing work um, and is doing so much amazing work. And and I love um, Zaya and Maurizio and Lisa and all the sand people um, are just very dear to me. Oh, well, we, we all love you too. Zaya, when we started this podcast, you were one of the first people Zaya said, got to get in touch with Joan. You got to get in touch with Joan. So. Huh. I'm glad this this happened. And it's lovely to be with you. So I really enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you so much. And let's do it again in the future. Okay. Thank you. Cool. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.